like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And right now, I am deep in Dick's 1963 science fiction novel, The Game Players of Titan. Now, this is a novel that often gets overlooked by Philip Dick fans. It's uh, not generally considered one of the greatest of his 1960 novels, but it's a lot of fun and... It's got a lot of interesting themes and interesting setting, and it's really a novel that's that's worth examining in some detail, even if it's not maybe up there with some of his his greatest. In fact, the whole novel is is in a way a, a bait and switch. And if you listen to my previous two episodes, I talked about this novel as a murder mystery, as a novel about these quasi-feudal, what we're called bind men who control whole cities because the population is so low and everything is automated. So the elite in a future Earth that's uh, just lost a war to uh, the Titanians, the people from Titan, also called Vugs. And so there's a kind of a, a, a sort of occupation by the Vugs over the remaining humans, which are a very small number. For whatever reason, humanity has not been able to reproduce. The major theory that's out there is that uh, in a previous war before the Vug invasion, the Chinese had spread some chemical or, or, or disease that, that lowered birth rates. But in any case, people having children is very rare. And then they create these very interesting social systems in which to facilitate Fertility and the main way they do that is by swapping wives quite commonly. So people typically have 10 15 or more Marriages and the way they manage that is through the institution called the game Which is also how they swap property and gamble and you know Trade things back and forth and the reason they can do this is again because cities are basically kind of useless They are just status symbols. They are just places without people uh, I think that the, the, at one point they give the population of the earth that's something around 2 million so essentially, these are people waiting for humanity to die out. Um, now, for a game, for, for, for a book about luck in games, luck, actually, the, the most intimate meaning of luck in, in the book is the luck of having a child. So anyways, I said this novel was a bit of a bait and switch. And as I talked about in the previous two episodes, I presented it as a murder mystery set in this kind of interesting setting, but basically a very small novel, a novel that wasn't huge and and that's really how it begins and that's how it feels like we have an interesting setting but you know who really cares about this one uh very lucky buying man who always wins the game called Luckman, who's infiltrated the california game and is at risk of kind of winning all the property so he is is killed and then the police come and they interrogate the suspects who are all members of this uh game playing group called um, pretty blue fox that that's the california kind of branch of the game and they find out that six of the people including our main character pete gardner have lost time and so they're the suspects so the theory 
going into this part, you know, at the midpoint of the novel is that Lokman was murdered by these six people who then went to a psychic. There's a lot of psychics in the novel. And in fact, this is many ways kind of a, a novel about post-humans, about post-humans, but that's not really clear till the second half of the novel when that theme becomes more important. But anyways, the theory was that they killed him. Then they went to a psychic and had their minds wiped. So none of them could really inform on the police or give any crucial evidence. And so there'd all be plausible deniability. And then it'd be much more difficult to prosecute any one of them for the crime of murdering this man, Luckman. And that's essentially the novel up to the halfway point. But at the halfway point, the novel goes in an entirely different direction and just becomes wild and a lot of fun. And we start... It becomes global in its significance. It's a, it becomes a novel about the future of humanity. It becomes a novel about the future of the Titanian conquest of Earth. It becomes a novel about what is real to a certain degree. So even though that seems like something that Dick was playing with a lot in the late 50s and up through The Man in the High Castle, it re-enters in this novel in very interesting ways. It's a novel about, it becomes much more a novel about mental illness, about post-humanism, and what is the place of people with enhanced capabilities in humanity, uh, it's about uh, political factions within the Titanians, and he ends up cramming a whole lot into the second half of the novel. And in typical Dick fashion, he crams a little too much in, and doesn't give those those ideas and those feelings time to breathe. And you know, it, it's almost a regret that we might have looking at him that he wrote so much. The good thing is we got all his great ideas down on paper, but a lot of his novels can be kind of forgettable in the long term. Because they're not they're not world built as well as they probably should have been, and this is a good example of a novel that that he didn't really take the time to build up the world. Even in the Man in the High Castle, he starts to do that by having it crafting a much smaller tale about a handful of characters in very intimate situations, in, and then that gives him a chance to get the, this bigger picture. Here in the second half, as fun as it is, it does force Dick to just deal with a lot in about a hundred pages. Certainly not more than 100 pages, and it's a bit too much to digest, maybe, and it's kind of all out there. But anyways, it's it's a lot of fun, and in the last two episodes that I'm gonna, where I'm going to look at the game players of Titan, we're going to talk about this turn of the second half of the novel and where it goes, and you know and what and try to get around get get up to what this novel is trying to say on any number of these themes. Now it may come down to that it's hard to say Dick is trying to say any one thing. It, not like Man in the High Castle, where it does seem Dick has a very clear theme. Here, it's just a bunch of ideas being played with that kind of bounce all over the place. But again, it's, it's a lot of fun. So I, I like this novel, and I, I especially like the second half. And in fact, the second half, I think, is a lot more interesting than the first half, which does kind of drag on with this politics of who owns Berkeley, who owns San Rafael. And then you have a whole scene at a record store where, you know, it's it's very kind of banal stuff and it's very much like middle class people and their middle class problems right you're, you're often pulling out your hair in the first half of the novel thinking you know these are really kind of first world problems right who that these people have very the minutia of relationships and and who owns like you could almost just swap the homes or swap the towns with homes and you have you know middle class people being you know jealous of their neighbor for having a better house or something and then that's what you kind of have when you're looking at the people of a pretty blue fox. But again, in the second half of the novel, it does something, Dick does something really, really different. And it's a lot of fun. <clears throat> so anyways, go back and listen to the first two episodes where I talk about the setting and I talk about the plot of the first 
half of the novel. I'm going to pick up with chapter 10. So as chapter 9 ended, Pete Garden, Garden, our main character, just found out that he's lucky that his new wife, Carol, who he just had been married for like a day by that point, had is pregnant with his child. There's this new kind of rabbit paper. This is their birth control test. It's called rabbit paper that can identify like after 24 hours of a sexual encounter if there's a pregnancy. So it identified her as pregnant. So he went out to celebrate. Now, one thing to say about Pete Garden is he's bipolar, essentially. He's a manic depressive. So he spends much of the novel on these kind of binges where he kind of over-celebrates, but he also spends much of the novel depressed and thinking about suicide. And and this, the mental illness, it's actually something when you compare it to novels like the, um, what's it, uh, Plans of the Elfane Moon, which is all about mental illness. You know, you might miss that this novel actually has a lot to say about mental illness too, in a much more intimate way, actually, because it's dealing with one character who is in this crisis point in his life, ends up in this kind of much more bigger game, you know, really of, of global significance. Meanwhile, is facing his own feelings of inadequacy and his depression and his the ups and downs of, of his disorder that, that come with his disorder. So it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a character that, that I think, you know, Dick is, is putting some thought and love into when he describes them. I mean, he's probably the only character that gets much of that. I mean, Joe Schilling in a way, but the other characters are kind of forgettable, to, to say the least. Anyway, so Pete went out to celebrate, and for that, he means he's going to the bar to drink. Now, so later, I think it's the next morning, and this is where Chapter 10 opens, Carol, Pete's w- new wife, calls Freya, who is Pete's ex-wife from just the two days before and you know asking if she knows where pete is because he hasn't come home and she just says well you know it's pete he's probably depressed or something and she actually suggests a bar that he might have gone to called the blind lemon and that's when carol announces that they have a they have a baby coming that she's pregnant and then freya becomes very angry and bitter and she's going to spend much of the rest of the novel very embittered for a variety of reasons, one of which is the jealousy she feels over Carol's pregnancy, especially it's her ex-husband, and they couldn't get pregnant. And again, that's so much, that's such a meaningful thing. I, I Actually, it's a lot like the characters in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep who are all infertile and left behind on Earth, and they really have nothing to, they don't have a future, really. In this sense, these people are kind of human kipple as well, kind of lacking a future, and, and so... To have a baby is really to change that formula. In fact, I think Dick, by going in to Andrew's electric sheep, by making everyone sterile, is was kind of really pushing this point home. He, here he kind of waffles on it by giving hope that the future will have pregnant women again. And to Andrew's electric sheep, it's just brutal reality that this is the end of the line for humanity on Earth. And so they are just kippleized, except for the reproductive part. Kipple supposed to reproduce, but... In everywhere else way, where this kind of just the leftover random waste of of, of existence. The, now, you might want to disagree with Dick's insistence that reproductivity is tied to having some kind of future. Um, but it seems it's, it's here, it's in that novel, it's in the pre-persons and other stories. This idea that, yeah, there is something regenerative, regenerative, regenerative about, about, having children and something about projecting oneself into the future that matters and i I think that's contrasted with 
like what the Nazis do in the Man in the High Castle, where they're just kind of going to the future recklessly with piles of blood behind them, while the end of the novel, much more meaningful look into the future, is given by the Franks, who both kind of want to get back together. And, you know, maybe there's uh, a child in the future of the Frank family. We don't know. But certainly all the everything's set up for that possibility. Anyways, enough about childbirth. Uh, Freya, though, is very bitter about this, and she makes kind of a crude comment. She says, I hope it's a baby. Now, this what does this mean? Well, what? Well, a couple of things. One is, is Vugs can appear human if they want. So th- that may be part of the suggestion. But I think more straight to the point, it's like a, it seems a lot of births end up with mutants. So to say, I hope it's a baby is to basically suggest that maybe it's not or there might be a good chance that it's a mutant or it's not going to live or something. So it's quite, a, it's quite a cruel thing to say to people who are so desperate for ch- children. Okay, then we've, we, we actually meet up with Mr. Pete Garden. And he's talking... Now, at this point, for the rest of this chapter 10 at least, and for much of the rest of the novel, we really can't trust what's on stage fully for a couple of reasons. One is that Vugs can appear human. A second is my manipulation and mind control is certainly at play, and drugs are at play. So the, the combination of all these things make it very difficult to trace what is real and you know there's i think there's never any satisfactory answer but certainly because of post-humanism because the vugs have psychic power because pete spends at least this chapter and a few parts in the rest of the book on some kind of drug and because vugs can appear human as they wish there's really it's really hard to determine what's real and it's hard for our characters as well so he's talking to a vug who's a psychiatrist um, and the doctor's name is Dr. Eugene Phelps. But then he, he's immediately corrected, and the, and the man, the Vug, says, no, my name's Dr. E.R. Phillipson. And then he starts to think about and talk about Marianne McLean. Now, Marianne McLean is one of the few people who lives in his uh, San Rafael, the town he still owns. He lost Berkeley earlier in the story, but he still has San Rafael. It's one of his California holdings. And not many people live there, but the McLean family does. And um, Pat McLean, the older woman he's attracted to physically. And she's a psychic. And their daughter, who's like 18, is also, he's also very attracted to her. Um, I'm not sure how old Pete Garden is, but he's probably around 40 or so. Um, and he starts to think and talk about Mary Ann. And the doctor tries to analyze that and and he basically warns him that you shouldn't get involved with this young girl who you don't know anything about. The doctor eventually gives Garden advice to quote bend with the forces of time. He also asks about the murder of Luckman and he thinks he wants to find out if he did it and he has all these other questions and it's it's weird he even for a moment in here feels he's on Titan. And he feels he's he's moved there. It's it's kind of bizarre. He doesn't even know how long he's been there. And it's very odd that someone would go on a bender, a drunken bender, and then the next morning or even that night go, I think it's still that night, go to see a psychiatrist for, for therapy. I, I don't know if that's 
that ever happens maybe because he's a manic depressive he he you know it's it's something he does more commonly but it's all a very bizarre scene and we start to realize that we're not in the same novel that we were in the first half so after talking to the psychiatrist he goes back out so he did still night he goes to a bar again and he gets served by a rushmore effect rushmore is basically an ai um thing in fact a lot of the things people interact with on earth because they're so free humans are rushmore effects so the cops are rushmores often the bartenders the cars the t toasters the different appliances so there's all this interaction with them and the funny thing is is that they're very honest and they they can actually see through mental manipulation which will be an important plot point he finds out that he's in idaho and so he's gone on this long bender he doesn't know for how long and you know, he ends up in a place he doesn't remember going to. And he doesn't know how long he's, he's, he's been gone. Now, eventually a car comes to pick him up. And he gets in the car. And the person who's driving the car is Mary Ann McLean. Now, he asks, like, what are you doing here, young lady? And she explains that he had actually come by her house basically to try, I think, to, it sounds like to pick her up for this bender as a uh, as a potential date but he but she wasn't there she was at the library doing research and then he went off and so Marianne actually followed him here and and kept an eye on him now he's in the car then and she's trying to drive him home and he starts to talk about vugs and he starts to experience visions and thoughts that Marianne McLean herself is a vug and he really can't really maintain reality in there and he, he starts to really believe that everyone around him or that that the world that the humans are surrounded by vugs everywhere and that somehow his drunken state or lack of rest or something doing with his bender allowed him to kind of witness reality all right it's, it's kind of like the feeling you get when you read Dick's short story, The Faith of Our Fathers, in which, you know, after taking a certain hallucinogen that actually counteracts the hallucinogen that people can give in their water. So people start to see the leaders as they really are, like monsters. And, you know, that's sort of the thoughts going through Pete Garden's head and, and ours, too, especially if you've been reading Phil Dick's stories for a while. You know, that maybe through this drunken bender, he's able to kind of see reality. So that's why he saw the psychiatrist as a vug. And that's why he sees now Marianne McLean as a vug. So during the conversation, he says something to Marianne. And Marianne, well, about the pregnancy, right? And she's heard the news from Carol because she called Carol to find out where Pete was and all that. Um, and she found out about the baby. And she actually found out also about Freya's vicious comment about the baby. And Marianne says, like, oh, one more Terran in the world. And Pete Garden says, well, you must be a Vug because we don't say Terrans. We just say people or humans or whatever. You know, we it's actually that's a Vug expression, Terrans. And she kind of laughs it off. And she sort of says, well, yeah, there's this massive conspiracy. You know, we're all Vugs or something. And it's it seems she's kind of joking about it. But whether she is or not is something we'll have to see. But in his state, he, he really has a difficulty differentiating joking and reality and or anything going on thinking marianne's a thug she he accuses 
them, uh, the Vugs of killing Luckman and framing the, the people in Pretty Blue Fox for it. Um, anyways, this conversation is just really bizarre, and and it, it, the the sense I, the way I read it is Marianne is kind of joking with this guy who's super hungover, um, coming off this bender. But she does at one point mention that she's a telepath, and then Garden says, "Well, you, your mom said you're not a telepath, right?" And she said, "Well, I am, anyways." And then she finally gets him home at San Rafael, and she lets him out. She asks him for a kiss. And he's kind of hesitates to do that, despite his physical attraction for her. Because at this point, he probably thinks she's a vug. And then he he kind of explains, she kind of starts to explain what she thinks is happening to Peter and the things he's experiences, experiencing and the way he's experiencing it. And she says this, Yes, you took dope tonight and got drunk and you were terribly excited about Carol and you were afraid because of the police. You've been hallucinating like mad for the last two hours. You thought the psychiatrist, Dr. Philipson, was a vug. And then you thought, I was a vug. To the car, Marianne said, am I a vug? No, Marianne, the Rushmore circuit in the car answered for the second time. So that's um, that's something this AI can do because the vugs can appear as human, but it seems they're manipulating your perception to appear that way it's not actually they're changing their physical form it's a psychic thing so the rushmore effects can still determine whether whether people um are bugs or not you know they can see through reality they're more honest one more thing on this conversation a lot happens in this conversation one more thing they talk about is a character called nat's cats uh nat's cats was first introduced early on when when peter's at joe shillings who's uh, another game player, but he's down on his luck. He lost New York but, and is running a record store. But he, he's promised to help them in their whatever they're trying to do. We'll talk more about him later. He, Pat, uh, or Marianne McLean went into the store to get a Nat's Cat record or something. And he's like a popular DJ and performer at the time. And somehow, for whatever reason, Pete Garden thinks Nat Cats has something to do with whatever conspiracy is going on. And Again, Marianne sort of says, yeah, he's the center of it. But um, again, you're not sure if it's just her being jokey or not. Okay, he goes home and a couple of things happen when he's back at home with, with Carol. The first thing he does is he calls the psychiatrist, E.R. Philipson, to confirm that he saw him earlier. And the doctor does confirm that he saw him. So that's the first thing that happens. And then he and he finds out that Joe Schilling was the one who recommended the doctor to, to Pete Garden. The second thing he finds out is he actually wrote something on a matchbook and kind of hid it in his shoe so he wouldn't forget it, you know, when I was drunk and everything. So he, it wrote, what he wrote is we are entirely surrounded by bugs, rugs, vugs. You know, really, we are entirely surrounded by vugs. And so this... He, th he thinks he came to some truth while he was drunk. And everything that's happened since has been attempts to blind him to this truth. He realized in the depths of his bender, which could only be remembered because he wrote it down. So he calls a call Shillings and, and he's trying to convince Joe Schilling, his friend, that this note on this match book is, is the truth. And then Joe Schilling tries to talk him out of it. And basically figures out what he's been taking and, and combining with alcohol. And he says, see, this explains all your weird experiences. And actually, you know, has, he seems to be very knowledgeable about 
various drugs. Um, and certainly Philip Dick seemed to have been pretty knowledgeable about this stuff too. Comes up again and again in his novels. Um, I think he, you know, he took a lot of like over-the-counter speed, especially in the '60s. So he he thinks he thinks that explains the Joe Joe thinks this explains the phenomenon. Then he then he takes the phone or he gives you know he has to talk to Carol, and Carol. He basically warns Carol that Joe, that Pete, I mean, Pete is a manic depressive. He's very sensitive. He's He'll typically get upset by big news like the thing with the baby. And, you know, and basically Pete's could be kind of toxic and he'd be not the right person to talk to or believe about these things. And it's not something you can really talk him out of. At, it's certainly not at 530 in the morning. Joe and Pete talk a little bit more, but Pete still insists that the doctor he saw was from Titan. Now, after that conversation, he calls the police, Hawthorne, um, and, you know, to find out what's been going on in the, the Luckman case. And it's reported to Mr. To Garden that from by Hawthorne, the human police on the case, because the case has always had a human police and a vlog, both telepaths uh, who would do the investigation. They found out that the murderer of Luckman confessed. It was a man, it was no one in Pretty Blue Fox. It was actually a man named Sid Mosk who was an employee of Luckman's and that he had confessed to the murder. So that was, a, from the police point of view, a closed case. And then with that, Pete Garden goes to sleep. And that ends chapter 10. And, you know, you think it's not going to get too much, we can't get more bizarre than this chapter 10. Um, but it, in some ways it does. So in chapter 11, we, we pick up right where we left off. Pete Garden went to sleep. And actually, Dick's last words of chapter 10 was, it was a mistake. And the proof of it is the very next line in chapter 11. He awoke and he saw standing by the bed two figures, a man and a woman. And these people are Pat McLean and her husband, a man that Pete had never seen before, but he's perhaps heard of. Uh, of course, Pat McLean has been married and she's had all these kids. So it was something he would have known, but he never actually met this man. The man's name is Alan McLean. And basically they're trying to take Pete Garden away for whatever reason. Alan, it's just revealed pretty quickly. I think actually Pete Garden figures it out that Alan is a precog. And so the way precognition works in this, in this novel, it's a little bit, similar to how you see it in a lot of the stories this well you have i guess the world jones made which is a very different type of precognition where you where you see exactly what's going to happen in the future one year one year into the future and the, the way it works here is similar to how it works in some of the stories and that is that precogs can see multiple possibilities and so they can kind of hedge their bet and they can see which possibility will work and can kind of choose certain paths to go down and that's how it that's how it works here. And they're not well. Certainly, what they it's hard for them to take advantage of of the situation because they can only see like limited possibilities. But they sometimes can choose among those limited possibilities. So essentially, they're kidnapping um, Pete Garden as they're leaving the building with him, and Pete's going with them basically to protect Carol. 
the elevator door opens and then the detective, the one he talked to on the phone earlier, they're, they're all vid phones, by the way, if you're wondering, it's pretty standard in Dick's novels. The detective Wade, ha Wade, Wade Hawthorne shows up and then Alan McClain instantly, without even thinking about it, shoots him dead with a, with his heat needle, which is kind of like the laser beam. It was the same weapon that killed Luckman. Now, Pete, actually, he's he's pretty fat. He's pretty much on the ball here because he immediately warns the Rushmore about what happened. And he, and he tells the Rushmore to basically, you know, get help. But then Pat, Pat McLean just tells the Rushmore not to do it. And it seems these Rushmores don't have too much agency. They sort of just have to do what they're told and what their last order was. So um, Pat McLean prevented the Rushmore from uh, getting the news out of what happened, the kidnapping. They regret not having gotten E.B. Black, who's the Vogue policeman who was on the Luckman, Luckman case at the same time. Now, it's not entirely clear to us why would they want to kill the Vogues because or why would they want to kill the police at all? Because if it, if the murder of Luckman was identified, what, why does it matter that they live anymore? We learned that there's a lot of a whole lot of tension in this family. Um, so Alan McLean, for instance, says this about Marianne. That damn Marianne, somebody's ought to wring her neck. That age is amazing. When you're 18, you believe you know everything. You possess absolute certitude. And then when you're 150 years old, you don't. And then Alan talks about this intense animosity growing between Marianne and, and, and Pat. So there seems to be deep generational conflicts here. And there's... You know, partially it has to do, I think, with their abilities. We'll talk about Pat's abilities later on. But this is a family of, of psychics, so there's nothing really being hidden. Patricia can read minds, and and Alan, Ellen, sorry, um, Alan, is a precog. And Pat, who can read um, Pete's mind, you know, has access to everything that happened the night before with, at least as far as he remembers, with with Marianne, and she's able to kind of banter about that and, and kind of insult him. And even at one point, Alan says, like, you should have listened to Marianne and kissed her because you're not going to get a chance to kiss a beautiful girl like that too often. Anyways, this passage is, is just kind of uh, a joy to read because despite it really just being about kidnapping Pete and bringing him into basically to reveal the conspiracy to him to kind of drive the plot along, Dick can't help but have a kind of a family squabble, a deep family squabble enacted on the on the page. So once again, you get the sense that Dick's always kind of living his own personal life on the page of his novels. And even when it doesn't quite work in the plot, he'll fit it in in some way. So finally, Pete is taken to a with the McLeans to a to a hotel called the Dig Inn Motel. And there he meets a man named David Moutreau. David Boutreau is actually someone we met before. He was the precog who was trying to, well, was, Hug Luckman was trying to use this David Moutreau in his efforts to, to win games in California. But since psychics and people with these abilities aren't allowed in the game, you know, it was a risk, you know, and he wasn't sure how effective the surveillance of psychic powers would be over the game. So he ended up not using Moutreau. So we actually had met him before, but he actually is a much more important character than just a lackey of Luckman. So he's there, uh, and then at this point, Pat's 
trying to talk Pete down from some of his more delusional claims from the night before. And she's, of course, reading his mind. So she has some window into maybe reality. And she says what really happened there was simply a, quote, authentic psychotic occlusion caused by the by the drugs and, and, and the stuff he was he was consuming during this bender. Now, Marianne comes too, so it's basically all the McLeans are there, David Moutreau and Pete Garden. And it's basically like a collection of these psychics have, have joined together and meeting in this hotel. Pat eventually asks about the Luckman case and did this guy, Sid Musk, actually confess to having killed Luckman? And Moutreau says, yes, but it was Rothman, who a character we haven't really met yet, but Rothman who put pressure on him to confess in order to take the pressure off of Pretty Blue Fox. That was all part of a like a giant conspiracy. Sid Mosk, I don't think we met earlier either. He's only mentioned as the one who confessed, but he seems to be part of this organization of, of psychic and telepaths and psi people as well. Now, Marianne presents a different theory about what has happened, or what happened to Joe the night before, and a little bit more interesting and deep one. It wasn't just that he was high on, on drugs and having a psychotic experience because... Of, of of him being high, but actually that she was he was an involuntary telepath, and the way it's explained is this quote: "You were psychotic because of those pills and the drinking, and you picked up my marginal thoughts, all my anxieties, what they used to call the subconscious. Didn't my mother ever warn you about that? She she ought to know. And before you picked up that psychiatrist subconscious fears too. We're all afraid of the Vugs. It's natural. They're our enemies. We fought a war with them and didn't win, and now we're here. See." End quote. So this is this is the theory she offers up. Essentially, that that Peter, through the drugs he was taking, was able to have basically this what what, what you call it again involuntary telepathy. But since he's new to it and he doesn't not used to using telepathy, it comes off in weird ways. And so what they're able to read are the 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 deep seated anxieties and emotions of the other people. But since they're afraid of the Vugs, he starts to, you know, he starts to see the Vug conspiracy everywhere. And that's why he, he had these delusions. So it's actually a, a much better explanation than just that he was high. And it helps to explain his insistence and his feeling of true paranoia about, you know, this feeling this is a conspiracy. It wasn't just he was seeing things, right? He actually believed that these people were Vugs. And we learned that psychic abilities are quite, psionic abilities are quite common and everyone has access to some small level of psychic abilities. Very few can really harness it, but everyone is capable of these these um, involuntary telepathic moments from time to time or, or little psi powers given the right conditions. And then Pete basically tells him to he has to grow up. He has to stop drinking and using all these drugs and to buckle down because there's some serious stuff happening and he needs to be on top of his game to do that to be part of that and then joe or pete asks about this thing she said where she repeated what freya said to carol about i hope it's a baby this very cruel um, line and she denies saying it and he says no no you definitely said it and then she makes this cryptic comment well then i've been reached they must have gotten to me and she's kind of scared by that then we have a, a scene change where Carol is coming home, back to her house. Pete's already been taken, of course, and she finds she finds 
Hawthorne dead on their floor. This is the second body she's found in like two days. Poor, poor woman. So she just marries this guy. And in the first couple days of their marriage, she finds two dead bodies. First Luckman and then, then the policeman, Hawthorne. She, she asked the Rushmore what happened. She asked the elevator Rushmore what happens. And then he just gives matter-of-factly like, yeah, so your husband wanted to get help but then this woman said not to so i didn't do it so again we we, we find that these these rushmores are not really capable of of fully thinking for themselves as, as much as they may be ais and then she asked the rushmore to call the police and say what happened and at that point she gets a phone call from joe Schilling, but she did not she doesn't answer the phone and then when Schilling doesn't get an answer, he jumps into his car, Max, who's always, who's always fighting with. So Max seems more on the ball than that elevator. Anyways, as far as AIs are concerned, he jumps into the car, drives, drives it to San Rafael, to, to the gardens, walks inside and sees the Vogue, who's E.B. Black, and, and Carol. Oh, sorry, not, no, Carol's there too, but she, at first he only sees the Vogue. And he gets the explanation that that people that Pat McLean most likely, because that's I guess matched the description, killed Hawthorne and took Pete away. So what this certainly does is it throws the whole case in in a new the Luckman case anyways in a new perspective because it it cast doubt on the confession and the original theory that it was these six people who had their memories wiped. You know that someone wanted Luckman dead, and they used these six people to do it, and then erased their memory. Or maybe it was a conspiracy of people who had their memories erased. Is still the more plausible theory at this point, and that's sort of where E.B. Black is. Now, this case isn't that important to the rest of the novel because the novel is going to go off in much bigger directions. But that that case is still kind of floating in the backdrop of the story. But that ends uh, chapter eleven, a very important chapter to say the least. Uh, both chapter 10 and chapter 11 are really turning point chapters in this novel, both in the plot and in the, in the tone and the, nat- and, 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 the, and the feeling we get in this in the story. Now, as chapter 12 opens, we're back in this meeting of the size at this hotel. And so it's. And they're all kind of interrogating and mind reading Pete Garden and, and messing with them. So it's Moutreau. It's. The McLeans, it's Rothman, that, that leader who was mentioned in the previous chapter. He's there too now and and some others. But most of the action is surrounding those characters and the discussion they have about what they're going to do and what they're about. Now, the focus of their concern is that, they're in, that their organization has been infiltrated by the, by the Vugs, by the people from Titan, and that these psychics are a major force of resistance against the domination of Earth by the Titanians, who they also believe are responsible for the, the decline in fertility on Earth. They don't buy that it was this Chinese attack before the war. Actually, they think this is a conscious effort by at least some of the Vugs to manipulate the, the Terran um, birthright. But focuses on Marianne as the suspect for the one who's been infiltrated in some way by the Vugs, or maybe that she she is a Vug and in, in, in hiding or or in some other way, psychically being compromised by by the Vugs. So as they 
Well, they, they, they first turn on Marianne and see her as the compromised agent. And Marianne gets away in part by, by basically manipulating the, the body. She, she turns out she's a, she's a kinetic. She's a telekinetic. Um, psychokinetics, I guess, is the way that he calls them, Dick calls them in the book. And she's she's kind of is able to control Pete Garden's body, even almost at the molecular level, and she's able to get away, and she escapes. But the rest of the group then start to scan each other to find out who is still maybe compromised, and all of their attention focuses on Mutro. The fact that he seems to be the one person holding something back. He has like what's called an inert area in his mind, and. And then Moutreau tries to get away because he thinks he's going to be identified and killed or whatever they're going to do to him. But Rothman convinces him to stay and says, like, for the security of the group, we need to find out who is the compromised agent. So he's, he's forced to, to sit down. And it's at this moment in this part of the story when Pete, who's, you know, kind of recovered from whatever Marianne did to him, realizes that in this motel room are nine Vugs and David Moutreau, that this conspiracy... So what's happened here is this conspiracy of size who are very fertile has been against Vugs, right? They've had this plan to like kill Vugs and resist them and whatever, but actually they've been taken over by Vugs and they're slowly purging out the people who haven't been and Moutreau is one of the last humans who remain. And now Patricia, the Patricia McLean Vug, who can read Pete Garner's mind, says, oh, look, Pete sees us all as Vugs. So again, we, we're back to this earlier question we had during his binge, whether Pete is truly a truly seeing these things as they are, or he's under some kind of chemical influence, or maybe he's under more of this involuntary telepathy issue and he's just reliving this feeling that there's a conspiracy projected onto the these other people so then we get to chapter 13 and Schilling is still talking with Carol and trying to make sense of everything that's been going on he can't quite understand why Carol and Alan would kill a policeman because it would put so much heat upon them so he's kind of baffled by that and he finally gets a call from his attorney Laird Sharp. They make an appointment and Laird Sharp comes to to San Rafael to meet him and then they drive off and they're kind of going to try to follow some of Pete Garden's footsteps. And the first place they go to visit is is Philipson, this psychiatrist that that Pete Garden had had seen the day before. And they see an old man running a, a Nick Rose Garden, which must have been very expensive. And they're very impressed with this road garden. And they ask for this Dr. Philipson. And the old man identifies himself as this Dr. Philipson. And he asks about Pete Garden. Did he come last night? And they explain that he's been kidnapped. And try to get what information they can from him. And basically, Philipson says, there's not that much I actually know about this guy. He says, I've never seen him before in my life. I couldn't get an accurate background history from him because last night he was drunk and scared and sick. He phoned me at my home. I had gone to bed. I met him downtown Potatello at a bar. I forgot the name of it now. It was a bar in which he had which he had stopped. He had an attractive young girl with him, 
but she didn't come in. Garden was actively hallucinating and needed major psychiatric help. I could scarcely supply that to him in the middle of the night at a bar, needless to say. End quote. So that helps to explain some of the confusion from chapter 10 about what happened. It's a little bit more of a clear, objective narrative. Not that Philipson turns out to be a reliable narrator, narrator himself, but it, it's a little bit more plausible about what happened, that he met the psychiatrist at a bar and ended up talking with him a little bit. And one thing they learn from Dr. Philipson is, well, they talk about this fear of the vugs that, that Garden had. And this fury that the Vugs are onto them. And then Philipson begins to talk very eloquently and in detailed ways about the political factions within Titan. That basically there's two big groups. There are Titanians who want to suppress Earth, and they're the ones essentially responsible for the low birth rate. And they're like the hardliners. They want to see Earth suppressed and conquered. And then there's like the moderates, people like E.B. Black, who want to have more of a benevolent rule and, and kind of let Earth to itself and, and, and basically are, are somewhat indifferent to them. It turns out that the, that the people who like the games, the people who brought the game from Titan to Earth, are more of the moderate faction. And he claims he knows this because four of the high-ranking thugs on Earth are getting therapy from him for their own uh, psychological problems. And all four of those people are specifically politically moderate on this spectrum of this kind of, or this, it's like a binary spectrum. And then Philipson is also able to give a theory that the reason that he was actually killed by, or that Luckman, I mean, Luckman was killed by the extremist Titanians, the ones who want to see Earth's birth rate suppressed. And the one, his, the problem with Luckman is he had too much luck. He had too many children. And that's mentioned earlier in the novel that he actually was one of the more prolific fathers in the world at the time. So he was a threat to this dominant, this control of Earth's fertility. And so he was killed. And then this group of humans in the Pretty Blue Fox were used, were manipulated in order to, were manipulated in order to to keep down the birth rate on Earth. So it's, a, it's some kind of a more mundane reason for the murder than we've been expecting. And then he explains that there's a group on Earth that's very active in trying to stop the radical Titanians. And this is organized around the McLeans, who are also prolific and other prolific humans. So the McLeans are famously prolific because they had three children. And so this conversation helps put together a lot of a lot of what was a little bit more confusing in the previous two chapters. So Schilling thinks everything is kind of answered and explained. You know, we know where where Pete is, who kidnapped him, who killed Hawthorne. They know about the McLean organization. They know about the political divisions among the Vugs. And but Sharp remembers that Pete Garden thought that this psychiatrist Philpson was was a Vug. So they go back to the old trick, which was ask the Rushmore in the car, you know, is Philipson a Vug or not? And the car says Dr. Philipson is a Vug. And the one who said it was not Max. It wasn't, it wasn't Joe Schilling's car. It was Philipson's own car that, that gave this clarity. 
Joe Schilling takes out his gun, which he had previously bought, and points it at Philipson and says, okay, now you got to explain yourself. And the doctor says, well, I'm not a vug, that computer's wrong, but actually I'm a psychic. I didn't tell that, and I'm part of this McLean organization. And they ask, well, what's your psychic power? What's your psionic power? And he says, an unusual one. It will surprise you when I tell you. Basically, it's related to Mary Ann's, a form of psychokinesis, but it's rather specialized compared to hers. I form one end of a two-way underground system between Terra and Titan. Titanians come here, and on occasion, certain Terrans are transmitted to Titan. This procedure is an improvement on the standard spacecraft method because there is no time lapse. May I show you? Sharp wants him killed, but... But Joe Schilling hesitates and is scared, and then... Philipson actually does this ability where he projects Schilling to Titan. So he's going to warp him essentially to Titan on this underground railroad. And he's thrown right into a game play that the Titanians on this planet are playing, the game of bluff. This is the game that's popular on Earth. It's harder, it's, it's, it's harder to see how it's played by the Titanians. This is something Dick actually addresses in the book, and it's actually an important plot point. And that is, how, do, so how does the population of psychics play a game based on bluffing? And it turns out there's two ways to do this. One is the, the psychic powers become part of the game itself. And also, these abilities can be suppressed. So one way, now the way the game works, and this is the, the first good description we get. We get a better description later in the novel too, but this is the first rather clear way it works, is you draw a card. And that card has a number on it, right? And then you move your game piece forward in a number of numbers. And then there'll be some, like it's not like a Monopoly board where it'll say like, you have to pay a tax of 500 or you win a thousand. It's, it's a very simplified kind of board. It actually seems kind of a silly game in that way. But you move your piece there. And so let's say it says you win a thousand dollars in in the lottery. Now, if you got there by bluffing, meaning the card was a four, and you actually had to move five spaces to get there, they can call you on the bluff. And then if then you lose a thousand instead of gaining a thousand dollars and you have to give it to them. If they call your bluff and your card actually is right, and it's let's say you move five spaces and your card is actually five, then then they have to pay you the thousand dollars. So that's that's essentially how the game works. That's how the bluffing mechanism in the game works. And now the way this, so one way of doing this is you suppress your psychic abilities. You can't read minds because the game can't work if you can read minds. The second way is that you, some people have the psi ability to change reality. So you can change the card to make someone a bluffer or not a bluffer. Now the trick is for the other side to realize that's being done and to do it as well. And so it becomes almost a contest of, of psi abilities than a contest of, of bluffing and lying. So the game, it, it seems it, has, it can be played at different levels. And that's why really Titanians and humans can't play because they don't quite have the same abilities. And it's played in different ways. Like on Earth, Psy abilities just banned altogether in the game. You know, that can't be done on Titan because I think everyone essentially has Psy abilities on Titan. But anyways, Joe Schilling is put into this game and because he doesn't really play by their rules, he ends up breaking the game. Essentially, he breaks the game and it, it implodes, almost literally. And so he basically goes all the way to Titan to play a couple, like a couple turns of, of bluff with Titanians. And then he, he breaks the game and he, he's, he's brought back to Earth. 
And that's how chapter, I guess that's 13, yeah, chapter 13 ends. And that's where I'll end my discussion of, of this part. This would be the third part of the game players of Titan. So obviously a lot going on in these chapters. We learn a lot. We the, the whole kind of nature of the story, what it's about changes at this point. It becomes less about the murder of Luckman. That, that whole plot takes a back seat to what is really a story about the fate of humanity and the relationship between these post-humans and the Vugs. And, you know, it's it gets really wild at this point. And that, that's part of the fun of Philip Dick is reading this kind of wildness, even if sometimes you're not quite sure where you are entirely. Um, it's always a fun read. So um, I guess that's going to do it. I'm not going to spend too much more time talking about this part of, of the novel, um, except it's, it's really a turning point. I'll reflect more on what this novel means overall in my next and final episode, or I'll look at the final four chapters of, of the novel and then give some of my, my final thoughts and my overall review of the, stor of the story. So as always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you have your own feelings on the gameplay of Titans, if, if you read these, these key chapters differently, or if you see things that I didn't talk about or didn't focus on, um, they're really dense and action-packed and, and kind of there's a lot packed into it. So I had to skip over a few bits here and there. So if there's anything important you think I missed out, please leave your comments. If you have any of your own thoughts about this novel, please let me know or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And um, that'll be it. I'll, I'll, I'll sign off and I'll be back shortly with part for my finale of my review of the game players of Titan. You will find peace and contentment forever if you